With the new year, we've begun a new series of lessons entitled, The Time Is Now. A call to worship. And last Sunday, we began this series by discussing the meaning of worship. What the Bible says it is and is not. And we concluded that very first lesson with these four specific key definitions. First, worship is giving, not getting. Second, worship is both heart and art. Third, worship is life, not just lips. And fourth, worship is optimal, not optional. And this morning in our second lesson, let's build on this fourth key definition, that is that worship is optimal, not optional. As we talk about the mandate to worship, why should we be so concerned about worship? Of what significance is worship to our lives as Christ followers? In God's order of priorities for us, where does worship fall? Well, let me cut to the very bottom line at the outset of today's lesson and again say that worship is optimal. It is the ultimate purpose for our lives. It is God's number one priority for us. There is nothing, absolutely nothing at all, of greater importance to God than for us to choose to worship Him. Jesus Himself put it this way. John 4, verses 23 and 24. Follow along in your Bible as I read. John 4, verse 23, Jesus says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Don't miss that phrase there at the end of verse 23. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The message paraphrases that same phrase this way. That's the kind of people the Father's out looking for. (laughs) And the point is God is seeking. He is looking for men and women who will worship Him. He is searching for people individually, and I believe congregationally, who recognize that they were born and then born again to worship. This mandate to worship God first and foremost is supported, I think, by at least these two truths. First, Scripture is dominated by worship. You might be surprised to discover just how much the Bible has to say about worship. In fact, let's take a quick panoramic view from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation. It all begins with the example of the patriarchs. The example of the patriarchs. Under the patriarchal system, the father acted as the spiritual leader of the family structure and was the mediator. God spoke through him to his family, and he spoke to God on behalf of his family. And therefore, quite often in the book of Genesis, we see the great patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob leading their families in worship. And it was the altar 
upon which sacrifices were offered to God. That became the focal point of patriarchal worship. Let me just cite one such example from Genesis 35, verses 1 through 3. God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God who appeared to you. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where we will build. I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Just one example among many. Scripture is dominated by worship. First we see that in the example of the patriarchs. Then we see it in the exhortation of the commandments. Moving through history just a bit, when God began to lay down some standards, principles, guidelines for His people in the form of commandments, statutes, ordinances, and laws, what was it that was the most important to Him? What was the first and primary commandment of all of them? Well, look at it. Exodus 20, verse 3. Yeah, let's read this out loud together. You shall have no other gods before Me. Yeah. First and foremost, God wanted the Israelites to understand that He alone is to be worshipped before and above all other so-called gods. And the first of the Ten Commandments isn't enough to convince you. Then take a look at the second. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I mean, can it get any clearer than that? God so strongly desires our worship that the first two of the Ten Commandments have to do with worshiping Him and Him alone. Scripture is dominated by worship. We see that in the exhortation of the commandments. Next, of course, came the establishment of the tabernacle. When God called His people out of Egypt and they began to wander in the wilderness, He wanted them to focus on worshiping Him. And so He established a place for this worship to occur. It was the tabernacle. Now, to give you an idea of the priority that God placed on this portable worship structure, consider that it took seven chapters... Exodus 25-31, 243 verses for God to give all the blueprints, materials, and instructions on how the tabernacle was to be built and furnished. Then, in the first two chapters of the book of Numbers, God gave detailed instructions as to how Israel was to encamp around the tabernacle during their journey to the promised land. I hope you can see this up here. I know it's small. But but the tribes had specific places that they had to put up camp. And notice it was around the tabernacle in the very center of it where the Shekinah glory of God, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, you know, where His presence was in above the most holy place there in the tabernacle. God, you see, I, didn't think, I don't think He did that by accident. He wanted to be the center of the camp. He wanted to illustrate to His people that I must be at the very center of your lives. The focal point, you see, was worship. Drawing attention to Himself. So Scripture's dominated by worship. We see that in the establishment of the tabernacle. And then we come to the emphasis of the Psalms. And as we read through the Psalms, it's so obvious that David and the other psalmists 
had a heart for worship. Here are just a few verses that I picked out to emphasis on this. Psalm 5, verse 7, But I, by Your great mercy, will come into Your house. In reverence will I bow down towards Your holy temple. Psalm 29, verse 2, Ascribe to the Lord the glory to His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Psalm 66, verses 1-4, through Shout with joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God, How awesome are Your deeds. Psalm 86, verses 9 and 10. Let's read this one out loud together. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. Psalm 138, verses 1 and 2. I will praise You, O Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I will sing Your praise. I will bow down toward Your holy temple and will praise Your name for Your love and Your faithfulness. For You have exalted above all things Your name and Your Word. And believe me, we could go on and on and on and on. In fact, we didn't even mention, by the way, Psalms 145 through 150, which are so full of expressions of worship and praise unto God. But the point is clear. Scripture is dominated by worship. We see that in the emphasis of the Psalms. Then we come to the experience of the prophets. Several of the prophets, in fact, record their own worship experiences in the 17 books of prophecy at the end of the Old Testament. And I find it interesting that in most cases, the word of the Lord came to the prophets while they were worshiping. Their call to be a prophet of God came while they were experiencing worshiping. God. And such was the case with Isaiah. In fact, I want you to turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read this one with you following along. Isaiah chapter 6 is on page 1069 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah writes of his own experience. It was while he was worshiping God that he really received his call to become the mighty prophet that he was. Isaiah chapter 6. By the way, in a couple of weeks, two Sundays from now, we're actually going to build an entire worship service around these verses we're about to read. We're going to take and build the entire service around teaching from and worshiping in response to the eight verses we're about to read right now. It's going to be a real unique experience. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know if Norma is because she's going to help me out with it. But we're going to make it happen and I believe it's going to be a unique service. So keep that in mind a couple Sundays from now. Isaiah chapter 6, we pick it up with verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, Isaiah says, seated on the throne, high and exalted. The train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice, here it is, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. So Scripture is dominated by worship. We see that in the experience of the prophets. Now as we move on to the New Testament, we see the enforcement of Jesus. Of course, if worship is important, then would we not expect the Son of God to address it? During His life and ministry here on this earth, we shouldn't be surprised to discover that on several occasions, Jesus enforced worship as a priority. I'll just give you a couple of examples. In Matthew chapter 4, we read of Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And in verse 10, Jesus responds to one of Satan's temptations this way, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And in those words, by the way, Jesus was just enforcing the first two commandments, wasn't He? And then in John 4, as Jesus talked with the woman at the well, their conversation is centered around worship. And once again, i got to read verse 23. I know we've read it a lot in the last couple of weeks, but I read it again. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Scripture is dominated by worship. We see that in the enforcement of Jesus. Then there's the evidence of the church. The book of Acts shows evidence again and again of the priority that the early church placed upon worship. I mean, what did the disciples do immediately after Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1? According to verse 14, they returned to Jerusalem, withdrew into an upper room where they all joined together constantly in prayer. They, they worshiped God, basically, is what they did, while they waited for the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And after the Holy Spirit came, what did they do according to Acts 2, verses 46 and 47? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, for worship, by the way. They broke bread in their homes, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. In other words, they worshiped. And what was the response of the early Christians when they began to be persecuted? Acts chapter 4 tells us they met together for prayer and praise, worship. In fact, so powerful was their worship that verse 31 tells us the place where they were meeting was shaken. Now that gets your attention, wouldn't it? Wow. And what were the believers in Antioch doing, by the way, when the Holy Spirit called Barnabas and Paul out to the very first mission work in Acts chapter 13? Verse 2 tells us they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Enough said. Scripture is dominated by worship. We see that in the evidence of the church. Then we get to the encouragement of the letters. As we read through the 21 letters or the epistles of the New Testament, we find quite a bit of instruction on worship. Remember, Paul and the other writers were most often writing to new churches. 
or to church pastors about what the church was to be and to do. And among all of these instructions, Paul wrote these words of encouragement to the churches in Ephesus and Colossae. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Let's read this one out loud together. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the Word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your life. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing. Sing your hearts out to God. Let every detail in your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the Master Jesus, worshiping God the Father every step of the way. Scripture is dominated by worship. We see that in the encouragement of the letters, which brings us then to the events of Revelation. <laughs> As the window of heaven is opened and eternity. And we get a glimpse there in the book of Revelation. Guess what we see? <laughs> Worship. <laughs> I mean, what a picture in Revelation. I just got to read a few of these to you. Revelation 4, verses 8 through 11. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things. Revelation 5, verses 13 and 14. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. That's kind of like everything, right? <laughs> Get the picture? Everything in creation singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation 15, verse 4. Who will not fear You, O Lord, and bring glory to Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before You, for Your righteous acts have been revealed. Revelation 19, verses 4-7, through The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. They cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, ye who fear Him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. Just a glimpse of heaven. And what do we see? Worship. Scripture is dominated by worship. We see that in the events of Revelation. So there you have it. Scripture is dominated by worship. From the book of Genesis... Through the book of Revelation, we see example after example, instruction after instruction about worshiping God. The fact that worship is optimal, it's our number one priority, our ultimate purpose for living, is validated again and again by the Bible. Again, Scripture is dominated by worship. Which leads us to our second main thought this morning. And that is that humankind is designed to worship. Humankind, you and I, we are designed 
by God Himself to worship Him. As I've said, I believe worship is optimal. It's the ultimate purpose for which God created us. Certainly that mandate to worship is clear from our overview of Genesis through Revelation. God designed us so that of our own free will, we would choose to worship Him. And then we sinned and shattered our relationship with God. So what did God do? He sent His Son, Jesus, God in the flesh, to redeem us and to reconcile us back to Himself. Why? So that we might do what we were chosen to do in the first place. Worship God. I love this quote from A.W. Tozer. I put it there in your notes. Look at it. Just follow along as I read it, would you? The purpose of God in sending His Son to die and live and be at the right hand of God the Father was that He might restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship that we might come back and learn to do again that which we were created to do in the first place. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness to spend our time in awesome wonder and adoration of God, feeling it and expressing it and letting it get into our labors and doing nothing except as an act of worship to Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Simply put, we've been born and then born again to worship. God designed us He wired us. He uh, shaped us. How else can I say it? (laughs) To worship Him. The Bible makes this abundantly clear. I want you to think this through with me a little more. Let me ask you this question. Why was Israel redeemed? For what purpose did God deliver the Jews from bondage and slavery in Egypt? You ever thought about that? To find the answer, you've got to go back to Exodus chapter 3 and the burning bush and God's call to Moses. Now, I don't know how many times I had read this story over the years and I missed it. (laughs) We're not going to miss it this morning. Pay careful attention to God's words to Moses here. I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Why? Ah, here it is. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. I missed that. For years I read this story and never got that. I mean, did you catch it? Here stood Moses barefoot in the presence of Almighty God before this burning bush on Mount Sinai and God commissions him, you go and bring my people back here so that they can worship me. You see, worship is the heart, it's the core, it's the issue, it's the key, it's the destiny, it's the ultimate purpose of Israel's redemption. God freed them to worship. Likewise, in the New Testament, in Luke 19 and verse 10, Jesus said that He, the Son of Man, came to seek and save those who were lost. Why? Well, Jesus reveals that purpose for His seeking and saving. Back to John 4 and verse 23. Where am I? Someplace there? Uh Uh-oh. I just glitched this out. Hang 
see where we're at. Where was I? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Why? For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. The Father sent the Son to seek and save for the express purpose of producing a worship, worshiping people. And thus the object of our redemption, like that of the Jews in the Old Testament, is worship. I want you to hear me on this. The primary reason that we are saved is not so that we will escape hell. I never thought about that before. If God desired that, then He wouldn't have created us in the first place. Rather, the supreme motive for our redemption is not for us to receive anything. This is not about us. Amen. <laughs> The bottom line of our redemption is so that God may receive something, and that is worship. This is all about God. We are saved not for our own benefit or blessing, but so that our lives might glorify God. Amen. Some of you might be a little uncomfortable about this. <laughs> well, I thought it was about me. I thought, I thought God sent Jesus for me. I thought this was all about me. God saved me. Oh, thank you, God. <laughs> it's not about us after all. I just want you to know it's all about God. Yeah. God saved us so that we could choose again to do what He created us to do in the first place, which is worship Him. Oh, we got to get this one. So, one more Scripture on this. Philippians 3 and verse 3. Read this out loud with me. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, what in the world is Paul saying here? <laughs> He's contrasting, you see, the Christian and the Jew. The Jews taught that the true mark of a child of God was physical. Circumcision. In contrast, Paul says that the mark of a true child of God is spiritual. And what is that mark? A spiritual mark? We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Folks, <clears throat> the way we demonstrate that we're truly God's children is by worshiping God, by fulfilling the primary purpose for which we were born and then born again. Worship. <clears throat> we who worship by the Spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus. Ah, wish I could say more. Do you get it? <laughs> Humankind is designed to worship. The time is now. Call to worship. This morning we've considered the mandate to worship. Why should we be concerned at all about worship? I mean, what significance is worship to our lives as Christ followers? In God's order of priorities for us, where does worship fall? Well, quite simply, worship is optimal. It is the ultimate purpose for our lives. It's God's number one priority for us. There is nothing, absolutely nothing at all, of greater importance to God than for us to choose to worship Him. 
God is seeking. He's looking for men and women who will worship Him. He's searching for people individually and congregationally who recognize that they were born and then born again to worship. This mandate to worship God first and foremost is supported by at least these two truths we looked at today. First, that Scripture is dominated by worship. It's everywhere you turn in worship. I hope that when you start reading the Bible, you'll see it a little differently maybe. And start seeing how often it's all about worship. And humankind is designed. We're wired. We're made to worship God. Let's conclude today's lesson by reading Psalm 27 and verse 4 out loud together. Would you read this with me? I'm asking God for one thing, only one thing, to dwell with Him my whole life long, to contemplate His beauty, to worship at His feet. Isn't that a great verse? Just one thing, God. One thing I have to ask of you. What would that one thing be in your life? Well, in David it says, God, I just want to dwell with You. I just want to be with You, man. I just, I just want to be in Your presence all the time. I just want to walk with You. I want to have fellowship with You. I want to have a relationship with You that's so tight that, that I'm just literally dwelling in Your house all the time, 24-7, so that I can look at Your beauty and so that I can do what You've created me to do. Yes. That's worship.